We are in a study, and we have been for some time in the book of Colossians, and as we move into these final two chapters uh, this morning, we discover that Paul turns the corner in this letter, and that is he transitions, and I don't like the word theoretical, but it, I can't think of a better word, but he, he transitions from the theoretical to the practical, or as one commentator suggests, from the indicative in the first half of the book to the imperative in the second half of the book. It's not unlike what Paul does in the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians, as this, Paul says, here's the truth, church. This is who Christ is. These are the incredible things that he's accomplished for you. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he says, now, here's how you put these incredible truths into practice. So here's the theoretical. This is who Christ is. This is who God is. Now, this is what you need to do with the truth that I've told you about. That's what he's doing here. One writer comments on this pattern that Paul uses in a lot of his writings, and I like this. He says, for Paul, doctrine demands duty. Creed determines conduct. And facts demand action. You can't have one without the other. And this is what Paul does here. And I want to ask you a couple of questions this morning. These are things that I've thought about as we've gone through this study. What's the point, after all, of declaring and defending the truth of the gospel if we fail to demonstrate that truth in practical ways? What's the point of knowledge, of understanding of Scripture, of who God is, of knowing Christ, if this knowledge fails to inform our lives and make a difference? What's the point? St. Augustine once asked, Why value Christ at all if you fail to value Him above all things? There needs to be a connection between knowledge and understanding and practical action. And here's my point. Too many followers of Christ, too many of us perhaps, we know a great deal about God. We have all kinds of knowledge. We are theologically sound. Okay? We get the first two chapters of the book of Colossians. We have good theology. But we don't allow our faith to consistently, if ever, inform who we are or how we live. There is a disconnect for so many of us between our theology and our ethics. And I feel like I just bang this drum you know, over and over that we've got to make a connection between what we believe and what we do. We've got to. And that's what Paul's saying here. It seems to me it's one of the issues that he's attempting to address in these last two chapters of Colossians. So how do we find consistency in our spiritual lives? How do we strike a balance between what we believe and how we act? How do we start living, truly living our new lives in Christ? How do we begin to live in to the reality of who we are in Christ? How do we do that? Well, in these first 11 verses of chapter 3, and if you have Bibles, open up and kind of follow along. You can follow along in the outline that's in your worship program as well. But Paul describes very practically how we can begin to live our new life in Christ. How we can, as he said in chapter 2, live as those who are truly alive in Christ. And isn't that, after all, for those of us who sincerely want to follow Christ, what we want to be about? To really live as though we're alive in Him. I want to read these first seven verses for you. Chapter 3. Paul says, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts 
on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also get rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Do not lie to each other since you have, been, you have taken off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Well, the first thing that we discover if we're going to begin to live this new life in Christ, to really come alive in our faith, is that we have to begin to set our sights on things above. We have to begin to set our sights, our hearts and our minds, as Paul says, on things above. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. Set your hearts and minds, says Paul. Set them. I want to look closely at this little word, set, for a minute. The word implies, it assumes intentionality and purpose. Set your heart and your mind. It suggests that we need to do something about our spiritual growth. That you and I have a role to play. That we have a responsibility in our growth. It insists that we participate in our spiritual growth. Too many believers think that they simply pray the prayer... And then they stand back and say, okay, God, do it. Do it in me. Change me. Make me a new person. And God does do that. But we have a role to play. We have a part to play in this as well. We set our hearts and minds in a certain direction. And in doing so, we cooperate with what God wants to do in us. You see, we participate. Because I've been doing so many weddings lately, I think of the the example of marriage, right? It's like... We get married, and it would be like assuming that just simply because we walk down the aisle and we say the vows, that somehow the, 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 the marriage magically will be this wonderful thing. That we have to do nothing. And those of you that are married or thinking about it know that that's not true. Right? We each have a role to play. And the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. We have a role to play. We cooperate with God as He grows us into the people that He really wants us to be. Our spiritual growth is not God's responsibility alone. We have a part to play by setting our hearts and our minds, by being purposeful. It raises a question that I think needs to be asked. On what things do you most often set your heart and your mind? What is the focus of your life? Where does your mind go when you allow it to go? What inhabits your thinking? Paul says that our focus should be on things above. Set your hearts and minds on things above. On the mountains, on light, on heaven. That's good. Heaven. Things above. On what heaven's going to be like. This would seem to make sense. And in fact, there's some translations of the Bible that actually translate things above as heaven. 
But I think Paul's suggesting that we set our hearts and minds on something even higher than heaven. On something even more spiritual, even more profound than heaven. He's suggesting that we begin to set our hearts and minds on those things that occupy God's thinking. Peace, justice, healing, reconciliation, and the list goes on. In other words, we need to begin to think about life, about ourselves, about the world, like God does. We need to begin seeing all of life, everything we do, the good things and the difficult things from God's perspective, from His vantage point. We need to begin to think God's thoughts. Paul says, you and I have the mind of Christ. What in the world does that mean? I think it has something to do with this. According to Paul, we're to get our minds off of earthly things. How difficult is that? Off of our material positions, off of our images, off of our goals, off of our needs and our wants and all the things that occupy our thinking. And he says, set them on heavenly things, not heaven, on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So first of all, we set our hearts and minds, and then we set them on things above, and then he further clarifies and says, not only things above, but where Christ is seated at God's right hand. When we set our hearts and minds like this, we're focused on the throne where Christ is seated. The throne from which he rules heaven and earth the throne from which he rules as Lord and God of all creation. It is the place of ultimate honor. It is the place of ultimate authority. And in the context of Colossians, it is certainly superior to any human philosophy or religion. This is an incredible picture. And it should remind us that no matter what happens, no matter what happens, God is in control. That he is still the Lord, despite the things we read about, despite the things that happen all around us, that He is the Lord. Even if the earth, the psalmist writes, should give way and the mountains should fall into the heart of the sea, God is still God. He is still the Lord. He is still in control. I think that we all need to hear that this morning because if you're like me, there are times when life can seem pretty out of control. And you may even ask the question, God, where are you in the midst of all this? No matter what we face, Jesus Christ, the Lord, has the power and the authority to make a difference in our lives. That is the truth. Setting our hearts and minds on things above, on the throne of God, changes us. When we adopt a new perspective, when we adopt God's perspective, it changes us. We become more like Christ. And that's the goal of our faith. How do we do it? How do we make it work? Do we try harder? You know, do we think deeper thoughts? Do we turn the lights off and crawl away someplace? How do we do it? Where do we find the power to set our hearts and our minds? How do we begin to think differently? One word. Resurrection. Resurrection. Since then, Paul says, you have been raised with Christ. We have been resurrected with Jesus. He died for us. We died with Him. We are new people. But pastor, I looked in the mirror this morning. I don't care what you saw. Pretty scary in some cases, I'm sure. It doesn't matter. You are a new creature in Christ. That's who you are. You've been raised with Him. You've been resurrected. 
And because of that, you can set your hearts and minds on things above. You and I share, listen to this, in His resurrected life. We participate in this powerful, supernatural, transforming life. And we participate in it now. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven. We have new life in Him now. You are alive in Christ now. You have everything you need in Christ now. We possess both the power and His character to begin to change and to focus our hearts and minds on things above. A couple of practical suggestions. This may sound redundant, but I'm going to say it anyway. Pray every day, every day, that God will give you His perspective on all things, on all the events and all the circumstances of your life. Do you do that? If you're like me, oftentimes you just want to seize control and make it happen. And we truly need to stand back and say, okay, God, what do you think? What would you do? What should I do? Please speak to me. Study the Scriptures each day. You don't have to read through the whole Bible in six weeks. You don't have to do that. Take pieces of it. Take the book of Colossians, the book of Ephesians, Philippians, the Gospel of Mark, and just begin to read and ask God to speak to you, to give you His perspective. Make it a spiritual habit. Look and listen for God as you read and you study the Scriptures. And spend time with like-minded people, other believers who are truly seeking to know Christ in a deep and profound way. This doesn't mean that you cut off all your friendships with people outside the church. We don't want to do that, right? But you need to spend time with people who are on the same track that you're on. You need to have that kind of connection with people, to be able to talk to them, say, this is what I struggle with. And they say, yeah, you know, I struggle with that too. And, and how, do we, how do we get to where we want to be? So we set our sights on things above. That's what we do. And then here's the second thing. I don't know how else to say this. We need to begin to see ourselves as dead people. I don't mean spiritually dead people, by the way. We need to begin to see ourselves as dead people. Let me explain. It's true that we've been raised with Christ. But Paul says that we have also, what? Died with Him, verse 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart, your mind, you died with Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ died for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. This is sometimes called substitution. Christ took our place. He died in our place. He died the death that you and I should have died. He got what we deserved. But He also, we also, died with Him spiritually on the cross. And this is called identification. Christ died for us. We died with Him. And the Bible teaches both of these things. When Christ died for us, we were saved. We were rescued from sin and death. And when we died with Him, we were set apart. We were set free. We were given a clean slate to grow and to become like Him, to share in His resurrected life, and to truly become alive in Him. You and I died with Christ. For you died, Paul says. The old you is gone. And there is an entirely, in his words in 2 Corinthians, an entirely new creation. Not even a new person. An entirely new creation. When you look in the mirror, do you see an entirely new creation? 
I doubt it. Most of us don't. But that is who you are. This is the new life that Christ wants us to begin to live into, to understand. This is the identity that He wants us to grab a hold of. This is how one person, a person I know pretty well, attempted to make truth, make sense of this truth. Before he met Christ, this guy was a party animal. I mean, he was crazy. And uh, he could party every night of the week and somehow resurrect himself the next morning to go to work. Get up each day, go to work. And after becoming a believer, he decided that the craziness needed to stop. Good choice. The craziness needed to stop. So the first time he received an invitation to a party, he simply replied, I'm sorry, I cannot attend. I recently died. <laughs> Think about that. No, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't participate. I'm, I'm, I'm a dead person. It would spark some good conversation. But notice this in verse 3. Paul says, you died. Okay, you're dead people, right? Then in verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he provides a list of, of some of these things. Okay, here's the question. If something is dead, why do we need to continue to kill it? Doesn't dead mean dead? If I swat a fly, unless I'm crazy, and I kill it, do I continue to swat it and beat it into a pulp? No. Dead is dead. So what's Paul's point? You died, therefore put to death. He seems to be saying that although you and I are new people, which we are, we're new creatures in Christ, although the old has died and the new is alive with Christ, sin is still real. It still has a grip on us. We still struggle with it. Isn't this true in your experience? You know, it's the whole three steps ahead, two steps back kind of thing. Just when you think you're doing okay, you find out you're really not. Most of us know too well the power that the old self, the power that sin has in our lives. Despite what Christ has done for us, He died for us, despite what He's doing in us and through us, and He's making us new people, sin is still a powerful force in this broken world in which we live. We've changed. Sin hasn't. This side of heaven, you and I will continually struggle. We'll be hounded by sin, and we will need to regularly, with God's help, put it to death. Kill it. Swat it. We won't accomplish it by trying harder. And that's what most of us do. I've got this habit, and I'm going to kick it, doggone it. And I try harder, and I try harder, and then I blow it, and I feel awful. And then I go at it again, and we just can't seem to get on top of it. We can't do it by trying harder, but we can do it by trusting Christ with our lives. I mean really trusting Him with our lives by placing our faith in Him to truly transform us. That's how it happens. You have to come to the point where you say, I am sick and tired. I don't want to do this anymore. I quit. And most of us have not come to that point. Why? Because we are so doggone capable we are too talented for our own good. We're too resourceful. And we haven't come to the end of ourselves, to the end of our resources. And until we do, we're going to continue to struggle. But when we trust, when we give it up, when we place our faith in Him, He transforms our lives. 
you, many of you, are living, breathing examples of exactly what I'm talking about. What are some of these sins? And I'm only going to talk about the first list, so take a deep breath. What are these things with God's help that we need to kill off, that we need to swat from time to time? What are these things that need to die? Paul gives us two lists. Here's the first one. Sexual immorality. Refers to inappropriate sexual relationships outside of marriage. It's clear, is it not, that our culture places a high, high value on sexuality, but also sees sex as a primary source of joy and fulfillment. You'd have to be a deaf, blind mute not to pick up on this message in our culture. Everything, and I sound like a Southern Baptist preacher now, everything is true. You get sick of it? It's like, come on. You're selling dish detergent with sex. I'm going to stop right there. If I am sexually fulfilled, or if I can find the right sexual partner, then I will be happy. That's what it's about. Sexuality and sex is a high value to God within the bounds of marriage. But He also wants us to find joy and our ultimate fulfillment in Him. In Him. And then there's impurity, there's lust, there's evil desire, and greed. And I just want to say a word about greed, if I may. Greed, which is idolatry. Greed is a big one. Because, as Paul says, it's really idol worship. In other words, when we're greedy, when we're constantly trying to get something, when we construct an idol out of vocation or money or fame or sex or power, we are really creating a God in our own image. A God that does exactly what we want that God to do. We, in fact, are the ones playing God at that point. And this is serious business. And this is something that God doesn't and has never taken lightly, ever. So Paul says... Kill these things. Put them to death. Get rid of them. Why? The last two verses that I want to talk about. Because, he says in verse 6, these things, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. I told you that he doesn't take these things lightly. And then he says, you used to walk in these ways, but you don't anymore. When you get involved in these kinds of behaviors, when you willfully walk in disobedience and sin, It incurs God's wrath. And then remember, Paul's writing to believers. Okay, And here's the thing. When he talks about wrath, he's not talking about what we generally think of, which is at the end of time, we'll all sort of stand before the Lord and he'll say, you know, good boy, bad boy, good girl, bad girl, you know, you this way, you that way. This indicates that this wrath is something that happens on an ongoing basis. Right? So when we choose, when a believer chooses to walk away, to beg their faith, to say, I don't want anything to do with this, what Paul is saying is that incurs God's wrath on a regular basis. And what in the heck does that mean? Does God kill people? Does God make bad things happen? I was one of these people that turned my back and walked away, and I was scared to death. And I was scared because I thought, what if Christ comes back, and I'm in this place, what would I say? I'm not sure that's what that means. I'm not sure it's about fear. 
I think it may have something to do with this. This comes from one of your teachers, by the way. Is it possible that God's wrath has something to do with the fact when we willfully choose to walk away and to act in bad ways, that this hound of heaven, this God who loves us, continues to pursue us to the point where it drives us absolutely nuts? I think that's what he's getting at. Because I can tell you that when you try to walk away, when you try to live contrary to what you know is right, God does not leave you alone. He continues to come after you. He continues to pursue you with His love. And that can be hell on earth. You can't get away from Him. Leave me alone. Now, I can say that to human beings and they'll leave me alone. God will not leave us alone. When you've committed your life to Him, when you've said, I choose you, I choose to follow you, Christ, and then you turn around and you willfully walk away, or in that context you just start doing things that are wrong, God will not leave you alone. Is that wrath? I think it gets at it a bit. And then this, and this is the last thing, I promise. He says, when we get involved in this kind of stuff, and I say this to people all the time, it doesn't reflect who you are. It doesn't make sense for you to live like this because it's not who you are. This isn't you. Remember my mother calling me on the phone back in the day and saying, of course, like all mothers and fathers, we didn't raise you this way. Right? We didn't raise you this way. And I'm thinking, how does she know what I'm doing? She said, your lifestyle doesn't reflect who you are. And that's what Paul says. Who you are in Christ. You're a new creation. Your sights are much higher than this. So begin to live into it. Live like the people that you really are. Don't sell yourself short. That's what he's getting at here. He's saying broaden your perspective. Get away from this. Set your sights out there. And you will be amazed at what God will do in your life. Look beyond this stuff that drags us down. Trust Christ to help you. We will continue to struggle with attitudes and relationships and habits and we need to get rid of that stuff. We need to kill it. And if we don't, the truth is, it will kill us. And that's exactly what Paul was saying to these believers. You have got to begin to live into the reality of who Christ is and who you are in Him. So you need to get rid of this stuff. You need to do whatever it takes and begin to live as those who have been redeemed, saved, rescued. With Christ's help, by His resurrection power that dwells in each one of us who know Him and trust Him, we can be changed, we can be transformed, we can be something way beyond what we ever imagined in Christ.